Yeah, so I happen to know just from watching Indiana Jones, plus other sources, blah, 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 about history, whatever. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead, get up close and personal with the lesser-known legacies and real-life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. You're looking good. Am I? Yeah. How are you feeling? Oh, uh, well, not too bad. Much better than I was four or five days ago. Yes. I mean, you were there for it all. That's true. Do I look better than I did four or five days ago? You do. You do. You're conscious, uh, for <laughs> conscious. starters. Yeah, I got the second shot, the second dose of the vaccine, and I had convinced myself that I would not get sick. Through sheer force of will. Through sheer force of will. I thought that I was powerful enough to just will my way to not be sick. Well, uh, good to know. Yeah, I got my ass kicked <laughs> for like 12 to 18 hours. You know, it's it's striking. But uh, the fact that you could not will yourself through immune reactions. <laughs> I know. And I'll tell you what, I'll, I would do it again. If I need a booster, I will do it again annually, anytime. It is so much better than the alternative. Yeah. I mean, like the idea that you felt that way for maybe like 12 hours. Right. As opposed to weeks. I know. Or yeah. months for some people. Jesus. Yes. No, exactly. That and. Um, Comes with the free microchip fantastic bonus who do you think gets the surveillance headquarters to monitor all these microchips in the divorce oh between bill and melinda <laughs> yes yeah i mean like because frankly mm-hmm. i feel like it's got to be worth something i mean it feels like a passion project Every, i mean that's fair that's right? fair she's probably like okay keep it yeah. don't need it she's like they already have cell phones what do you need it for <laughs> right. and it's like, no you don't understand <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's all him she she was never interested in that. No, he didn't even tell her about it. Yeah, I'm sure. When when you're pretty close to being all the way fully like a uh, quote unquote vaccinated from your like whenever the window of your second dose is over, right? Yeah, so, I am. Watch can't, out! Can't wait to start ignoring people with no reason now. <laughs> I know. You're gonna keep wearing the mask. We've said this before. It's just it's a permanent part of my look now. Mm, I like it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of masks, oh. that may hide your true self. Let's Look talk about this you. week's hero. Okay. Okay. I see what you did there. So you already know who this week's hero is. Well, so I know who this week's hero is, but unlike most weeks, I have steadfastly refused any details you have. about what this episode is about. Right. So this week's hero is Carl Jung. What do you know about Jung? I know that Jung was one of the preeminent figures at kind of the birth of psychology, I think around the same time as Freud, if Mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. Yep. And he pioneered a couple big concepts that have stuck into popular culture Mm -hmm. till the present day, Mm -hmm. such as the collective unconscious. Big one. And uh, a lot of his stuff was about archetypes, Mm -hmm. meaning like big types of characters that show show up in, in stories Throughout history, throughout cultures. A lot of symbolism. So, you know, like there's a hero archetype mm-hmm. and other stuff. Um, but I know very little about the man in his life. Okay. 
Well, you did the episode on Freud. So I did. if folks are interested in going back, I think it's episode 19, if I recall off the top of my head. That's a good precursor to this episode just to situate yourself in the world of psychoanalysis in the early 20th century. Which was fucking wild. Buckle up. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. If Freud, if Freud is our baseline and we're still buckling up, good, good to know we're in for a ride. Yo. Yo. You're in for a ride. Okay. Okay. Other things that are important to know that we're not going to talk about, I'm not going to talk about in depth, but some things that Jung is known for. He coined the terms introvert and extrovert. Oh, fun. His work, that archetype work, is the basis of the Myers-Briggs personality test. Okay, okay. You already mentioned collective unconscious, um, as well as a number of other psychoanalytic frameworks. So he was, you know, at the forefront of examining the subconscious and the unconscious and motivation for behavior. Before the early 20th century, you know, you have folks like Plato, you have philosophers, you have people philosophizing? Yeah. Is that the word? Philosophizing. Philosophizing about motivation for behavior. Yeah. But until like the late 19th century, early 20th century, you didn't have people studying it and trying to like make it a science. You had had people who were either philosophy or in the church trying to be like, oh, you have the good part of you and the Mm -hmm. like sinful part of you. But it was not about like studying the brain or the mind or anything. Absolutely not. But Freud comes along, Jung comes along, and here we are. You know anything else about him? Not really. Okay. Well, let's start at the beginning like we always do. We're going to just take it straight to Audrey's Astrology Corner. Born July 26th, 1875. And that makes him a... It makes him a Leo. It does. It does. Congratulations. The one zodiac sign you know. You nailed it. I, I do because I happen to be a Leo. Ugh. And, uh, Do I know it? <laughs> <laughs> is not believing in astrology a Leo thing? No, but your personality <laughs> fucking is. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Mm-hmm. So people born on July 26th tend to be charming and strong individuals with an almost unshakable belief in themselves. Without doubting their ability to judge situations in people, they will offer their opinions unstintingly as fact, expecting others to agree and acknowledge them as such. Can I just pause? I know I've been down on astrology for a long time, mm-hmm. but I happen to know from personal experience that everything I believe is actually true. Okay. And yeah. so this actually kind of lines up. I kind of see it. So this one, this one tracks. <laughs> this one sold me. Of the of the three hundred and sixty five days a year, this is the one where just like the Barnum effect really works. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's see, let's see how it plays out for Young. Okay, born in Switzerland, he was the first surviving son of his parents, who had two stillbirths and a uh, child who died just a few days after being born. So he's their fourth child, but first surviving. His father was a pastor, and um, his family actually came from money and kind of notoriety. His father was, his grandfather was the sort of like famous professor of theology something something. But Carl's father, although he pursued it, never really made it to the level of notoriety that he wanted. Okay, so he is like uh, Billy Graham is the big preacher and then like this is like the Franklin Graham like caught on the boat with cocaine style. 
Yeah, but poor. Okay, but poor. So, <laughs> Not as successful, but mm-hmm. but just poor. Yeah. So Carl grows up in like relative modesty. When he's six, his family moves. And at this time, Carl's mother, uh, who has before this previously been described as eccentric, but also depressed, essentially locks herself away in her bedroom. And she does this because she says that every night spirits visit her. Fun. We're going to talk a lot about mental illness in this podcast. And the last time we talked in depth about mental illness, we were talking about Howard Hughes. We actually got some feedback that some of the language we used was ableist, and it made a couple listeners uncomfortable. So first, I want to apologize for that. But second, I I want to acknowledge that uh, it is very likely that both Carl's mother and Carl experienced mental illness. And... um, it, but it had a significant effect on the way that he viewed the world and experienced the world and his relationship with his mother. And his legacy, I take it. And his legacy. Okay, so one semi-serious question. Yeah. I do not believe in ghosts. Okay. You believe in ghosts. Oh, big time. Love so, them. Can't get enough. Wish I had more of them. What is the threshold here? Because historically, mm-hmm. you could say a lot of people mm-hmm. who throughout history have been the person in the village who saw ghosts. Sure. Today... We might just assume, oh, this person has a mental illness, uh, perhaps correctly. So- sure. So there's not, I, I don't want to make like a, an, I don't want to make this like a polar thing where it's like sees ghost and is totally sane or uh, doesn't see ghost and is sane or sees ghost and, and has a mental illness. I just want to say that there is a threat of mental illness. His mother, after having lost, uh, you know, three children, experienced extreme depression and, um, likely some other mental illnesses that um, made the way that she experienced spirits uh, exuberant. Okay, exuberant ghosts. So I'm going to read a paragraph that I'm, I copy-pasted from Wikipedia, and I'm going to read it because it made me laugh out loud. Not because of his mother's mental illness, but because of the closing sentence. Okay. Okay, so here's the paragraph. Quote, Although she was normal during the day, Young recalled at night that his mother became strange and mysterious. He reported that one night he saw a faintly luminous and indefinite figure coming from her room with a head detached from the neck and floating in the air in front of the body. Young had a better relationship with his father. (laughs) I would expect so. Wait, so there's no, like, follow-up on that the whole headless whole... floating, no? I mean, there's more later in his <laughs> okay. life, but that that is where, like, the first sort of memories of the supernatural start to uh, infiltrate Young's worldview. I could see how it could complicate your relationship, sure. He obviously had a very interesting childhood. Yes. Later in his life, when he was writing his his autobiography, memoir, dreams, memories, something. He wrote of his childhood that, quote, he had two personalities, a modern Swiss citizen and a personality more suited to the 18th century. Personality number one, as he termed it, was a typical schoolboy living in the era of the time. And personality number two was a dignified, authoritative and influential man of the past. Well, he was a ghost. <laughs> Personality number two was a ghost. <laughs> yep. So he, despite all of this, 
he has a otherwise uneventful childhood. His father's a pastor. His his mother is actually institutionalized at one point to get some psychiatric help as best as like 1900 psychiatric help could provide. Yeah. Basically, at that point, the best psychiatric help is we'll hide you from the ghosts. Like that's <laughs> what they can offer. Yeah. Uh, ice therapy. Okay. Very best case scenario, some electric shock. But even then, we're talking early, early days of just the institutionalization of people who were non-normative. Yeah. And so just I'm assuming we don't have any follow up here about how his dad felt about all this as a as a man of the Bible. Yeah, I didn't do too much research into that, but my guess would be um, considered it maybe like demonic. Oh, fun, fun. But, but again, that's just speculative. Sure. Okay. So needless to say, they had very different organizing principles of their belief systems. Yes. In his late teens, he goes off to college, goes off to school. Initially, he thought he wanted to be a preacher, comes from a long line of preachers, realized not for him. Then he thought he might want to be an archaeologist, mm. which is where this idea of archetypes later comes in, because an, because the archetype is actually a principle mm. that existed in archaeology before ah. psychiatry or psychology. Archaeology, archetype, the history pattern of things. It's a loan word. Okay, okay. So there when, you go. So thought he was going to go for dinosaur ghosts, but <laughs> no. Didn't. Did nope. not. Uh, landed on psychiatry. As one is wont to do when you want to know where the ghosts are from. Sure, sure. 1895, at this point he's 20, deep into medicine. Wait, wait, wait. When you say deep into medicine, do you mean like taking it? No, no, studying it. Okay, okay, studying Yeah, so he's in med school. It's like 1895 to 1900. I don't know how long it takes to become a doctor back then, but probably not as long as it does now. Six to eight weeks. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. All you have to know is exactly how much cocaine to dispense <laughs> yes. for a variety of illnesses. By the way, doctor sounds like a way cooler job back then. <laughs> way cooler. Yeah. Uh, but by 1900, he's moved to Zurich, Zurich, and he is working at a psychiatric hospital. Okay. At the same time that he's moved there, he's working with his mentor, Eugene Bluler, and... Bluler is also working with Freud. Oh, so they're like one degree of separation. One degree. This is the first time where their paths sort of like uh, tangentially cross, mm -hmm. but it would be a few more years before they actually meet and have this like real professional relationship. But he's 25. 1903, he's 28. He meets and marries. Well, he marries. He has known her. Emma Rauschenberg. She's seven years younger than him. He's 28. She's 21. She is the daughter of an incredibly wealthy industrialist in Switzerland. She is literally the second wealthiest heiress in Switzerland. Okay. That's pretty good work if you can get it. It's a big deal, mm -hmm. right? Because when they meet, they meet before they get married a few years before. She's still a teenager. He is this penniless student, young doctor of psychiatry, which is like this brand new field of medicine, right? Who also sees ghosts. <laughs> Who also sees ghosts. Well, not at the time. Not, has seen ghosts. Has seen ghosts. Um, and surprisingly, for this time, her parents actually encouraged this marriage. Mm, why? Well, because they knew that her husband would not need to provide for her. Okay. And they really just wanted her to be happy. Mm -hmm. And also Emma's father had syphilis. Oh. And so they really wanted a doctor in the family who could treat him discreetly. <laughs> that's that's the, the health insurance plan of the day. Marry yeah. off one of the doctors, one of the daughters to the doctor. Right. So uh, I don't know how much cocaine you have to give someone to treat syphilis, but it's 
early 1900, so maybe probably a lot. Does it treat it or really encourage it? That's the question. Here's the thing. Who knows? Who knows? They have a relatively happy marriage. Uh, he it, it should be noted right now that he was a virgin when they got married. Okay. This was kind of a big deal because shortly after they get married, he's introduced to Freud and this idea of like psychosexual analysis. Mm-hmm. And do you remember the show Masters of Sex? I do. That was, mm-hmm. a, that was a fun show. Yeah, real hands-on experimentation. So for anyone who doesn't know, Masters of Sex is a show about this seminal study by Masters and Johnson, which was about like sexual behavior across a whole wide range of people, mostly straight cis people, mm-hmm. but almost exclusively. Yeah, yes, but it was essentially, you know, one of the first studies to take uh, sexuality and study it scientifically in like a very fieldwork kind of way, which involved them like watching people have sex for years and years in order to like catalog behaviors and arousal and things. Also having sex with each other for years and years. Yeah, well, that makes for a good show, and it also happened, and they got married and stuff. Yes, but their work was the thing that like uh, stood the test of time. Digression. Digression. We're back to Carl Jung. He's married to Emma. He is even in their early days, kind of like straying a bit, but they have a very close relationship. And he eventually writes this paper called Marriage as a Psychological Relationship. Okay. In it, he argues that people's childhoods influence their marriage partners, which I have not found to be true at all. <laughs> yeah, You're nothing the... like my mother. What is that about? <laughs> he said usually one person in the relationship had their shit together and um i've not found that to be true well okay <laughs> fair enough and also one of them had a good relationship with their parents and one of them didn't okay and typically these people would find each other and marry interesting and so it seems like emma had a pretty good relationship with her parents while um carl essentially only had a relationship with his father yes the same year that they marry it's 1903 Carl's dissertation is published, his doctoral dissertation. Is this the psychology of marriage one? This is not. That came later. Okay. This dissertation was called On the Psychology and Pathology of So-Called Occult Phenomena. Hmm. And it was quite the piece of work. Here's the premise. He spent dozens of hours with a 15-year-old medium who conducted seances. Fun. He, he did this for two weeks, but then she was too exhausted and her her powers ran out after oh, two weeks. Okay. But by the end of this two-week period, Young was convinced that his mother and later his daughter, loop back to this, but he was convinced that his mother was also a psychic and had supernatural abilities. Oh, after studying the psychology for years and having these childhood experiences, he comes down on the side of the ghosts are real. Yes. After a two-week period spent with a 15-year-old who was conducting seances in 1903. And writes his dissertation <laughs> about it. Yeah. So the long and the short of this, of this is that it kind of gets him in trouble in the psychoanalytic world. I wonder why. <laughs> Freud would eventually come around and be like, what the fuck? Yes. No. But... Young argues, and this is sort of the takeaway, that humans exist outside the realm of purely physical and that this idea of like purely materialistic thinking and not like, 
oh, I want things, but like the material world. Mm-hmm. That if you live only in the material world, then you are causing yourself a, quote, intellectual death. In- interesting. Okay. That's a jumping off point of his professional career. Yeah. And I take it. So the scientific community is like, mm, no. He goes, mo- yeah. Yes. Eventually. It goes mostly ignored at the beginning because he's a nobody. Okay. Right? Fair enough. Fair I mean, enough, yeah. we don't talk about this when we think of young <laughs> yes. we're not like oh yeah he started out with seances yeah the 15 the 15 year old seances for his dissertation yeah okay <laughs> anyway so from 1903 to 1906 he's writing he's working a lot by 1906 he leaves the psychiatric hospital where he was working he branches out on his own in 1906 he has two pieces published one is called studies in word association and also diagnostic association studies close but not the same uh, he sends copies of each of these to Freud. So these books detail how Jung observed how different words elicited different emotional responses in patients. He believed at the time his theory was that those words represented subconscious associations, typically around immoral or sexual content. So he sends this to Freud and Freud is like, yes, that's exactly right. You did it. You nailed it. Let's meet up. Subconscious dirty sex stuff right up his alley. Exactly. Immediately, Freud reaches out. The two of them meet. They spend 13 hours together and their first meeting. That's that's a long time for anybody. Okay. Well, <laughs> sure. So they spend 13 hours. Can't get enough. Freud is immediately impressed by Jung. Likes his ideas, but he also has kind of ulterior motives here. Go back to episode 19 if you need to know what those are. Yes. Start with the eel gonads. Make your way forward. So good. Freud was not like the most respected psychiatrist or psychoanalyst of his time. Yeah, he was uh, much more akin to a Coke dealer. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I mean, he legitimately was. (laughs) Yes. But he was like well enough respected, well enough known. He still did not have, I would say, like a protege. I see. He's 20 years older than young. He sees this up and comer who has sort of like landed on the same theories that he has through a different mm. mechanism. And he has this idea like, okay, I'm going to pass the torch to you. He needs someone who can come in and sort of like speak the language to younger psychiatrists and sort of validate these theories. Young also had the benefit of not being Jewish. Mm. And Freud experienced a lot of anti-Semitism. And so a lot of his work was not accepted in more mainstream publications. And so he was able to use Young to get these psychosexual theories published and into like the hands of more people. At first, it would seem the two men have a lot in common. They're both searching for the same answer, or they're both searching for an answer to the same questions. They're, right? bo- they're both using the best tools of the day to study the mind and try to figure out what are the subconscious things that motivate people that they're not aware of. Right. What's going on inside? What's below the surface? What is motivating this? They spend just inordinate amounts of time together for about six years. They travel. They're writing papers. They're critiquing each other's works. They're even analyzing each other's dreams pretty regularly. Okay. Got a little weird. Yeah. And over time, it becomes increasingly apparent, however, that despite starting at the same place, they kind of have divergent points of view as young matures in his understanding of psychoanalysis and his beliefs. Within five to six years of their first meeting, these two men are at 
serious odds with one another. Like we've mentioned, Freud's work is deeply rooted in this like sexualization of the psyche. All behaviors motivated by, motivated by sex, acquisition of it or avoidance of it, right? Young's theories, on the other hand, over this time, mature. They sort of shift further away from just a purely material world and the like purely physical sexual world to this like spiritualism. I mean, he started with uh-huh. a fucking seance mm-hmm. as his dissertation. So it's like he didn't have to go that far to leave the material <laughs> world. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little whiplash. Snip, <laughs> snap, snip, snap. He, he really doubles down on his early work. And Freud does not love this. At one point, Freud makes a point of saying like, hey, are you in? We need to make sure that, quote, the sexual theory of behavior becomes dogma, an unshakable bulwark against the black tide of occultism. And Jung's like, well, okay, so maybe, have you heard of the occult? (laughs) Let me tell you some things about cults. (laughs) And that is when stuff gets really messy. Uh, So they end up up in, in stark opposition to one another. That is the public story. Their academic beliefs point or like position them at odds with one another. And that is why the relationship ends. There are a number of historians who have studied the letters between Freud and Jung and Freud and colleagues and Jung and colleagues who believe that the real reason that there was sort of this destabilization of their relationship was because they each had sexual feelings for one another. Oh, my. Oh, my. Plot twist. Mm-hmm. This sort of comes to light um, after Freud faints twice in front of Jung. Both times, <laughs> yeah, just in the same room, Freud faints. Okay. Later, Freud would be like, that is because Jung was, like, of the occult and wanted to kill me. Mm-hmm. At the time, though... He told Young the reason he was fainting was because he was having migraines. And each time this happens, Young sort of like tenderly picks him up. He's smaller, carries him over to a couch and lays him there. I mean, it's like the perfect symbolism for Freud. Sure. Yes. So Young believes, okay, he's having these migraines. He's sick. Like there's a lot of stress in our relationship. Maybe we should just like back off this professional relationship. We'll each go our own direction. Behind the scenes, Freud was writing a letter to one of his colleagues, and he attributed these fainting spells to, quote, unruly homosexual feelings. Oh, my. Jung eventually hears about this. You can't be saying that stuff to everybody else and not expect it to come back around. You can't. You can't. No. You know, letter writing this, letter writing that. (laughs) It comes back around. takes a few weeks. Yeah, sure, sure. The post is slower, but it gets back to you. When he hears this... He is just outraged for a couple reasons. The first is that he was mad that, like, Freud was misleading him about why he was fainting. Okay. And that he wasn't really sick. And Jung had, you know, put all this energy into, like, making sure Freud was taken care of and was feeling bad about it, blah, blah, blah. The second reason is because Freud was one of the only people that Jung had confided in that he had experienced sexual assault as a young boy and harbored kind of pretty intense homophobia that he attributed to this sexual assault. Yikes. So he had this direct link in his mind between this homophobia and the mm-hmm. sexual violence. Yes. And and Freud was one of the only people who knew this at the time. Uh, and the person who had sexually assaulted Young was someone that Young had considered like his hero. And so to have this play out again with Freud was very triggering for him. 
Like a betrayal of like this secret. Yes. So Young writes to Freud in this like series of increasingly heated letters. He says, quote, I confess this to you with a struggle. I have a boundless admiration for you, both as a man and a researcher, and I bear you no conscious grudge. But my veneration for you has something of the character of a religious crush. Though it does not really bother me, I still feel it is disgusting and ridiculous because of the undeniable erotic undertone. This abominable feeling comes from the fact that as a boy, I was a victim by a man I once worship. This feeling hampers me considerably. That seems pretty clear. Pretty clear. Setting some boundaries. Yeah. It's just much more complicated than... Um, than just... Uh, uh, ghosts tiff- and sex. Yeah. It's not just ghosts versus sex. Mm-hmm. It's the ghosts of the sex Yeah. on top of the sex with the ghost guy. I mean, that's a really roundabout way to say like a lot of trauma. But yeah, there's sure. a lot of trauma. Yes. In response, Freud writes back, quote, I propose we abandon our personal relationship entirely. And just like that, they stopped contact altogether. Wait, that's that's it? You know, they didn't have, like, great way to sort of navigate this complicated scenario. Yeah, if only there were professionals who could have helped them establish better, healthier coping mechanisms for their mm-hmm. interpersonal dilemmas and traumas. Mm-hmm. So this contact stops, but it is really not without consequence for Young. This fallout happens in 1913. Young is essentially shunned by everyone in the like upper echelons of psychoanalytic circles at the time. Wait, so I thought Freud was trying to steal the clout from Jung mm-hmm. to get the Freudian ideas accepted. Yeah, but, you know, this was a line too far. People turn on Jung after this, basically. Yes, because Freud tells him to. Got it. It's after this shunning that Jung engages in uh, deliberate self-isolation. He has what is now sort of would be referred to as a potentially a psychotic break during this isolation. And again, I don't want to sound ableist or misrepresent what happened and make it seem like minimizing significant mental illness. But again, I do think it's important to share some of these details because it leads Young to do some um, pretty not cool things. Okay. It's after this period, or it's during this period of isolation, that Young establishes himself as a cult leader. Wait, what? Right. So cult is a strong word. I'm going to tell you why it fits here. Cult, kind of like Pythagoras cult, right? Not like Heaven's Gate, Jonestown cult. I mean, I feel like we're talking about a a manner of how far you're going, not like what Mm -hmm. you're doing. And the manner of what Young is doing is essentially establishing a cult where he is a prophet. He establishes essentially a social organization where he indoctrinates his followers with this shared belief system. They have a high level of social cohesion, and uh, that social cohesion is predicated on the fact that they view him as this like prophet-type leader. Wait, prophet of, of what? What is he prophesying? Here we go. So he calls his social club the psychology club. Oh, right? okay. It's innocu- innocuous enough. He understood very, very much so that he could not be perceived on the outside as being this eccentric cult leader. It had to be all above board, but behind the scenes, stuff gets wild. He's not going to call it the Oracle of the Lord of Darkness or anything. <laughs> no. He's going to call it psychology club. Right. Starts in 1913. There's this author and professor named Richard Knoll who wrote a book called The Young Cult, and he explains the beginning 
of this cult like this. Um, and just for the record, there is a sequel to this book. Both of them are hotly debated and uh, decried enormously by the young foundation and family. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> That's um, a good stuff then. But to be fair, much of the primary sources for these books come from the Library of Congress and like the Young Youngin Foundation itself. Okay, okay. So reliable sources at least for the info. Yes. I'm going to quote Professor Knoll. Quote, It began with a deification experience in 1913. While he was inducing visionary states in himself, what he was later to interpret as an initiation into an ancient Hellenistic mystery cult, Mithras. During 1913 and 1914, Young withdrew from his former bourgeoisie lifestyle and lived out a wild, intense, mad fantasy life during which he believed that he was initiated into this mystery cult. He descended into a cave and had all sorts of strange dreams and fantasies, which he described in his book, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And the culmination of this whole series of visions happens when Young is standing with his arms outstretched like the crucified Christ. A big snake wrapped around his body suddenly turns into a god. He develops a lion head, becoming the lion-headed god of the ancient Mithraic religion, a mixture of Mithraic Kronos and Christ. This initiation was pretty significant for Young. Yeah, wait, okay, so hold on. Wait, so uh, I lost track of where we were describing things that he did versus things that like he imagined happened and had visions it, of? It's all imagined. Did he go into a real cave? It does not seem so. Okay, so... And these are all visions. Got it, got it, got it. These are all it. visions that he is like inducing in this like hallucinogenic state. Got it. I mean, well, who among us? <laughs> who among us? This happens... He is like, you know what? I am a lion-headed god. Okay, okay. I'm going to start this psychology club. Yeah, don't let him tell you different. Right, 1916, he founds it. And this club is devoted to the study of, generically, quote, spiritual topics. Uh So he brings in students and followers, uh, patients from his practice. That doesn't seem ethical. He even gets John D. Rockefeller's daughter to join Oh, there you go. Yeah. You usually can't get the big money, but you can get their kids. Right. <laughs> she gives him a million dollars for yeah. the social organization. Perfect. And for the next decade, he is practicing with patients, this like psychoanalyst, unconscious, you know, therapy, generic brick and mortar, come to my office, we'll talk during the day. And then at night, he's bringing in all of these followers and they're studying things like how the dead can disturb the undead world. Oh. He starts performing rituals and passing himself off as a clairvoyant. He tells people he can perform miracles. That's convenient. And in 1925, he publishes this book anonymously called Septum Sermons Ad Mortuus, The Seven Sermons of the Dead. And this book allegedly transcribed by Young was dictated to him from another dimension. Oh. In his visions, the spirit revealed to him the existence of a deity called Abraxas, whose power transcended both God and the devil. Oh, see, okay, I was going to ask, because, like, saying you transcribed some secret thing that somebody Mm -hmm. found has a tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, like, the Moses and, like, the, 
you know, God does the tablets, but then they get destroyed. So he has to, like, go redo them. Is that what happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, mm-hmm. anyway. And then there's, like, the Joseph Smith in mm-hmm. Mormonism where it's like, oh, I found this thing and I transcribed it. It was a message. But, like, here's what I wrote down. A lizard brought it, right? I'm just a messenger. Well, that was the that was the hoax part. From oh, the okay. Show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he, he's, you know, apparently transcribing it. So I was like, okay, well, if you have this. Got a lot of Christians being like, oh, it's just the devil. But nope, nope, can't be the devil if he's better than the devil and God. Got to be something else. Got to take him at face value. Couldn't be lying. <laughs> right. He can't. And he sort of like sees his position as the messenger of this, as uh, proof that Christianity is like rigged, that it's not real, that mm. there's this other dimension that he has access to. But over time, sort of, he, he begins to believe that he... And other evolved, which is uh, a code word for white people. Okay. Okay. Have. Wait, so this is a racist cult too. It's a racist cult. Oh, explicitly white supremacists. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Nice. So we're getting there. Okay. He believes that evolved people have, quote, an Aryan inner Christ. Oh, shit. Aryan. Okay. That can provide personal salvation. And this is the basis for his study of the collective unconscious. Wait, what? He eventually, more specifically, creates this theory called the collective Aryan unconscious. No way. That he believes compelled Adolf Hitler to follow the dictates and orders from the beyond. That He's there is this collective Aryan desire for Adolf Hitler to uh, lead the Nazi He's a fucking Nazi cult leader? He would later in his life be like, please, I unequivocally want it to be known that I am not a Nazi sympathizer. And I, you know, for shame, the Nazis. But he also publishes works around the collective unconscious where he explicitly states that he believes different cultures or different collective unconsciousnesses of these cultures had a direct impact on the individuals in those cultures on their chakras, which Jung thought uh, was more of like a consciousness center than even other energy centers. I feel like we firmly left the realm of psychology a while (laughs) back. So he pointed out that he thinks that there are different cultures that think with either their heart, others are uh, guided by their brain, and, and further, others are guided by their gut. As you have pointed out, this is pretty fucking racist. Yes, yes it is. He's coming up with these theories as he's traveling around Africa and the Middle East. And some of these theories are so racist that the Jungian society has recently issued multiple apologies for not acknowledging the racism in Jung's work sooner and not doing anything to like rectify the damage that what is essentially eugenics in Jungian work caused. Yeah, I mean, like he, <laughs> the, the apology sounds like it's, uh, oh, we, we Went back and read those, and they're really racist. They're really bad. Really bad. Yeah, there was a paper in 1988 that was written that explicitly calls out all of these different, you know, racist tenets of some of Jungian's collective unconscious work. And it took, honestly, another 30 years before these apologies are issued. Okay, so so just to be clear, after parting ways with Freud, because Freud was uh, ostensibly having these, like, secret gay urges about him, and mm-hmm. that was super traumatizing, he goes on to, like, have an office during the day where he's, like, doing psychoanalytics and psychotherapy. And training other analysts. And training people. And then at night is doing an Aryan cult that is 
revealing the collective unconscious of all these cultures that's so racist that they're issuing multiple public apologies down the line. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, the too long didn't read version is that he believes that all people possess a primitive mind. But in civilized people, another code word for white, uh, this is overlaid with a conscious individual self. And so he saw, quote unquote, primitives as offering a clear view of things hidden in the civilized psyche. And he believes that because he's traveled and he has seen people he believes to be more primitive than white people, he has access and like further validation that the psyche exists on like multiple dimensions and planes. And in and like white people are the only ones who have sort of individualized, individuated. What's the word I'm looking for? Individual, individualized. Yeah, individualized selves. What? Okay, so how? What was the name of the super sky god that was bigger than the devil and Abraxas? Abraxas. Mm-hmm. Does does that does that deity make any uh, further appearances? Because I feel like that was like a whole whole side, you know channel we didn't go down yeah it does for like a decade but there's so much that i could not in a coherent way tell the narrative of abraxas and the way that it influenced young okay i'm just curious you know what abraxas is supposed to look like my guess would be a lion-headed god (laughs) if it's anything it's made in the image of carl young himself yeah wrapped with a snake around his body too Mm -hmm. i feel like that would be a really cool tattoo but i'm just saying the hallucinations the visions there's some part of, you know, our understanding of young that can be sympathetic. Like maybe you have mental illness. There are a number of psychologists who have looked back and been like, seems like he might have been schizophrenic. Mm. And he was like undergoing all of these, you know, exercises to sort of excise himself of what he perceived to be these like spiritual complications. All of that can be true while also him being a super Aryan racist yes can be true as well there's some overlap because he takes these ideas that he believes he is like they're like divinely given to him yes and and sort of like melts that with these unfounded theories of race and superiority to create what he calls this collective unconscious yeah and i mean i think it's not trivial that you know he is laying the groundwork for what eventually i'm sure goes on to become the spiritual underpinning of the Third Reich itself. That's exactly what happens. Yeah, so I happen to know just from watching Indiana Jones plus other sources, blah, 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 about history, whatever, right? That, like, in those movies, the whole thing is like, oh, yeah, the Nazis aren't just trying to, like, start this, you know, country. They're starting this, like, spiritual warfare realm. And, yeah, the the fact that... uh it starts with his cave cave visions is uh, kind of shocking. All this is happening, and it's a lot happening. Yes. A lot, all the time. He's only like 50 at this point. He's writing these ideas. He is a prolific writer, just absolute stunning amount of work. His body of work is enormous. So he's writing. He's leading a cult. He is also seeing patients. And he's also sleeping with a bunch of patients. He becomes obsessed with a number of them. He has two pretty significant affairs during this time. The first was with this woman named Sabina. This only lasted two years. But the more significant extramarital relationship that Young has is with this patient-turned-student-turned 
turned colleague therapist Tony Wolf. So their relationship, well known by Emma, embraced. Uh, at times, Tony lived with them, vacationed with them. Wait, what? Helped them raise their children. Yeah, it was a consensual, non-monogamous relationship, and it lasted for 30 years. 30 years? Mm-hmm. Over the course of this 30 years, both Emma and Tony would become certified Jungian analysts. So he, Young, teaches them how to be therapists. They have their own practice. And uh, there's this book called Labyrinths about Emma Young Mm -hmm. and her relationship with Freud and Tony. And in it, it's noted that the three of them, at sort of like the peak of each of their professional careers, were passing patients back and forth between them so that they could then sort of like cross-check each other's theories. Wait, what? And analysis and like refine their ideas. Yeah, super unethical. Yes. (laughs) And... Okay, whatever consenting adults want to do in their marriage, like, I literally do not give a shit. The part that, like, really sort of makes me super irritated with this dynamic, and it should come as no surprise, is that both Emma Emma and Tony made really significant academic contributions to Jungian theory. And it, they are always attributed to Carl. Okay, yeah, that checks, that, that definitely checks out. Their ideas like anima and animus, which is about like the masculine and feminine drives in the unconscious. They take some of his unformed chaotic ramblings and give them names. They're able to, you know, create systems and identify patterns that really help sharpen Carl's practice and his ability to train other analysts. And there's pretty significant evidence that both of these women were considered better therapists than Carl. Okay, yeah. There were, you know, like documents that were like, oh yeah, I went to Carl for like three sessions and then I went to Tony and she like immediately was so much better and so much more refined. And so there are people who called her ability as a therapist uh, works of art. Wait, so you're saying that Tony was somehow a better therapist than the man who saw himself as a lion-headed god. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, and Emma and Tony, both in their own right, do have a significant amount of psychoanalytical, I don't know, successes attributed to them, but not in the mainstream, mm. right? Like, you have to go digging. Like, have you ever heard of Emma Young? No, no. Have you ever heard of Tony Wolf? And at the time, like, literally there are papers that talk about how Tony is the second best therapist in the world compared or like psychoanalyst compared to Carl. And even though firsthand experience was like, oh, she's actually way better than him. Yeah, interesting. But academically, she was up there and her entire history has been rewritten and like co-opted by people writing his history. Yes. So that bums me up. By the 1930s, Carl's in his 50s, mid 50s going on 60. He's emerged from this period of isolation He is sort of like distancing himself from the psychology club. And if you can believe it, he gets super into alchemy. Oh, I can believe it. (laughs) I can believe it. So this is a period of his research where he sort of becomes just like driven by this need to understand how alchemy fits into the psychoanalytic framework. Spoiler, it really kind of doesn't. Alchemy is in like the ancient, like back to the Middle Ages practice of trying to turn different things into gold. Yes. Here is how 
15, after 15 years of studying alchemy, he was able to uh, overlay it with psychoanalytic framework. He argued that the alchemical process was the transformation of the impure soul. Think about like lead, like sure. the L-E-A-D. Yep. To a perfected soul, which was gold. So it sounds like one thing they have in common is that both of them are made up. Right. <laughs> And he sees this as a metaphor for the individuation process. Oh. Takes him 15 years, but he gets there. That's that's what he comes to? Mm-hmm. He didn't ever actually turn lead into gold. No. So you would think like, oh, I spent 15 no years one trying has. to do this. No one has turned no one lead has. into Turns gold. Turns out they're different elements. They're <laughs> fundamentally different atomic structures. Yes. Uh, but you would think if you'd spend 15 years doing this, and be like this thing that has proven impossible beyond mm-hmm. a shadow of a doubt, that is the perfect analogy for my work. Right. Yeah, and if you can believe it, at the same time that he's writing and publishing these papers, he also becomes a professor of medical psychology, like like a real professor teaching other students, while in the background dicking around with lead, trying to figure out how it relates to his unconscious. Do the people hiring him as a medical professor know about his cult and all this alchemy stuff? No. So that's a very interesting point. The author of that book, the young cult talks about how he was, you know, very deliberate about who he let into these circles, not only because he knew it was like a professional liability, mm-hmm. but because he believed that as this like divine source, he had to vet other divine sources that he could like let in on this knowledge. Okay. So, no, he seems totally above board to most people for his whole life. And most people did not read his books or his papers, including the ones later in his life that he publishes about the archetypal meaning and possible psychological significance of reported observations of UFOs. Oh, UFOs. Okay. Okay. The divine drama of Christianity. Nice. Um, Some of his concerns around homosexuality. Okay. Uh, At the end of his life, he basically was like, who cares? Um, It doesn't make you less of a person, but like he was very much like no homo when it came to his own personal life. Very got very into psychedelics at some point. Fun. Uh, yeah. And then he spent the later part of his life making sure that he was capturing all of the like autobiographical details that would be important for his legacy. Captured in that book, Dreams, Memories, Reflections. Wow. 1944, he has a heart attack. He's like, I'm going to take a step back, take my foot off the gas, just going to write and work. He sort of like disappears from public life. And in 1961, he dies of what they called at the time circulatory disease, like cardiovascular disease. He's like 86. Wait, but 44 to 61? He's, yeah, he's not out leading the cult like he was before. He's just not the spry cult leader of his youth. Wow. Taking a step back really like uh, paid off for him. Yeah. He lived quite quite a while longer. He is obviously still probably the second most well-known psychologist of the 20th century. However, for leading the cult thing, definitely for the racism and white supremacy, for the unethical affairs with his patients, and the variety of other nonsense that Carl Jung put into the world of psychoanalysis as fact, Carl Jung is not my hero. You know, I tend to consider myself... In the Scooby-Doo camp of ghosts. Oh, okay. Which is to say, I generally think that they are fake and trying to manipulate you. Okay. (laughs) 
And I gotta say, hearing that his formative experience with ghosts and his visions of ghosts led him to start a white supremacist cult that got him to have sex with his patients, mm-hmm. it's not really changing my mind. Yeah, my goal was not to change your mind on that. Okay. Well, you, you changed my mind about astrology, so you're one for two. Not too bad. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I mean, I just... This, this to me, is one of those like Pythagoras-type episodes where a significant amount of it is harmless. A good portion of it is quite harmful. Yes, yes. All of it is absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and I feel like and if it was more well-known people would not even hold whatever regard they currently have for Carl Jung uh, unquestioned. Like, just Mm -hmm. the fact that, like, yeah, people still talk about Jungian archetypes and the collective unconscious with a straight face just feels like uh, a failure of the education system. Uh, On that note, what's your (laughs) Myers-Briggs? INTJ. Yeah, me too. It's like... um... The movie Girl Interrupted mm-hmm. with Lisa, who is the sociopath. Yeah. And someone is talking about how Lisa is, you know, like impressed with her own diagnosis of being a sociopath. Mm-hmm. And they're like, she likes it because it's so rare and mostly in men. <laughs> and that's what I like about being an INTJ. Yes. So rare and how mostly s- in men. <laughs> how similar to being a sociopath it is. <laughs> I'll take it. Yes. Well, if people would like to hear more of our borderline sociopathic and at the very least supernatural hallucinations where can they find us they can find us on social media at your heroes pod or on our website at meetyourheroespodcast.com yep and please like share rate review spread the word tell your friends and until next week Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.